0: And as we have sung of God's worth, as we have sought and to unite our hearts in seeking him in, in prayer together, uh, we continue to seek him as we receive from his word. So would you take your copy of God's word with me this morning and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the seat back in front of you. You can find it there. And the portion of scripture we'll be looking at this morning will be on page seven hundred and ninety. Mark chapter 6, we're considering this morning verses 30 down through the end, 56. This is the word of our Lord. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And when it grew late, his disciples came and said to him, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And he took up tw- and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And When they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Would you join in praying with me, asking that the Lord would help us as we consider his word this morning? Our God and Father, our prayer is that which we've just sung, that you would give us vision, that you would give us eyes to see what you have seen fit to write for us in your holy word. And Lord, we're asking not merely that we would see text on pages, black letters on white paper, but that, Father, we would see what you've intended, that we would see your Son, the the risen Savior, the Messiah sent to deliver, to rescue your people, from their sin. Father, what we're asking is that you would give us eyes of faith this morning to see things even that may be very familiar to us, see things that might be very absurd to us, and that we might see them with the eye of faith, that we would receive them, Lord, as you intended, that we might see your Son in all of his glory, that we might see ultimately our greatest need is to know him, to trust in him, and to be united to him. Help us, Father. Wherever we may be at this morning, that those truths may be known to us and by us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. In 1731, Jonathan Edwards, pastor and theologian, would write, The redeemed have all their objective good in God. God himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of by redemption. He is the highest good and the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. In other words, God is the gospel. The very single thing, every single thing promised to us in Scripture is not some disconnected thing that we seek, but as the Scriptures would teach and Edwards was seeking to clarify It is the result of being united and reconciled to God himself. God is the gospel. Perhaps, think along the lines for a minute about forgiveness. You may even want God's forgiveness this morning. You may even be having some strong sense of guilt or shame. And if your understanding is simply that forgiveness is a thing that you're granted, which soothes soothes guilt and shame, what have you really received? Or you might be longing to be healed from a disease or to get a better job or to find a spouse, and then you hear God can actually provide the things that we lack does being a Christian then simply mean that you now have a higher power to help you accomplish the things that you could not by yourself? What the Bible would teach, by way of illustration, examples, implications, and obvious clear commands, is that God not only calls us to merely seek the benefits he offers, but ultimately himself. And This great need that we all have for abiding rest and enduring satisfaction, it's found not simply in what Jesus gives, but in seeing Jesus as he really is revealed to us in the scriptures. But upon saying that, we should immediately then be asking, okay, who in then is this Jesus? Who is this one that we're supposed to actually know and not just seek all the benefits he might be able to give? Well, what Mark does is he records the words and works of Jesus so that we too, like these men and these crowds, would be exposed to his divinity so that we would know something of his identity. Or to say it this way, we need to see Jesus as he really is so that we might know who he is. And then we find our place with him. We see this through really two narratives this morning. Two stories that are meant to be read together. We are meant to see who Jesus is through his provision in the wilderness, and then secondly, his power over the waters. So let's consider first how we see Jesus in his provision here in the wilderness, and then we'll look at his power over the waters. Back in chapter 6, verses 30 through 44, we're given this story, this narrative of Jesus providing for the multitudes in the wilderness. I'm willing to bet that this is a miracle that's familiar to many. Uh, even Even if you're not a Christian, even if you do not read your Bible, you have some understanding that Jesus is the one who takes a few loaves and fish, and he somehow provided for a multitude. But there's more going on here than just merely reading this story and saying, Jesus has some raw ability to do what I couldn't do. That Jesus has some raw ability to perform miracles. While that is true, that's not the ultimate emphasis of what Mark is doing here. Keeping our Old Testament in view, it provides really the depth of field that we need to grasp the significance of what Mark is putting together here. Because this passage, when you read it with the illumination of the Old Testament, you hear all of these allusions to biblical characters like Moses or Joshua Elijah, perhaps even Elisha. And as you call to mind different Old Testament narratives, you hear echoes of the Exodus, of the manna in the wilderness with Moses, the familiar promise of Psalm 23 of a shepherd and a sheep and even green grass. And from this light, notice then what Mark draws out for us. Notice first of all in verse 34 that we are shown a shepherd With great compassion. I love the way the text reads here. He saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. The original language speaks really of a sensation in the guts, used really to speak metaphorically of this emotional sort of response, where we often, in our terms, our language, we will say, that is just heartbreaking. Or that's just head spinning to even imagine. Or that is gut-wrenching. We use those sort of euphemisms to describe what's happening to us. And when Jesus looked upon the crowds, he had compassion. He was deeply moved. He was aching for them. Now, in saying that, we could say, well, that's the opposite then of apathy, of callousness, of seeing something and being unmoved of seeing a situation and just shaking your head. And what we see in our scriptures is that what most often happens to us does not happen to Jesus. Because what most often happens to us when we are repeatedly exposed to various forms of need, need that are so great and so explicit, we actually become numb. We actually become callous. We actually shrug our shoulders, and yet Christ, the Son of God come in the flesh, looks upon human need, and as he's been traveling around villages and city and countryside, seeing the people there, he is actually not moved to apathy, but he's moved to compassion. Jesus moves from city to town to village, and he is wrecked. He is wrecked by what he sees. He is moved with compassion. Now, upon hearing that, let me ask you to think about it, not just in this historical context, but today. How do you imagine Jesus looking at our world today? How does he see individual homes? How does he see individual communities or churches? What does he look upon and what does he see? Well, the wonderful revelation Of Scripture is that although God sees everything as it truly is, he is not apathetic nor is he calloused. He is actually compassionate. That is what Jesus reveals about the Father. And furthermore, if you are here this morning and you specifically, you are reeling from disease even affliction, some form of hardship, guilt, or sorrow, the scriptures would want you to know and to hear that you have a Jesus. There is a Jesus who not only sees, but he's actually moved with compassion. As he looks upon this church this morning, he is moved with compassion. And friend, if that is true of you today, if you are here and you are recognizing that you have great need, and then to hear that Christ, this Jesus, is actually moved with compassion, I would encourage you especially to press in closely and to hear how Jesus responds to this sort of need. Mark tells us explicitly, because he said he's not only a shepherd who has compassion, he's a shepherd who sees their true condition. This is also in verse 34. Jesus is not the one who just sees the effects of something and feels compassion. He sees the root cause and has compassion. He sees their true condition. What was it that specifically moved Jesus in compassion? Mark tells us that upon seeing the crowd in verse 34, they were like sheep without a shepherd. The Bible says, often uses sheep as this image to describe God's people. It's a favorite image of Scripture because sheep thrive when they're cared for, when they're fed, when they're protected, when they're led by a shepherd. But without a shepherd, they are vulnerable, they are weak, they are miserable and foolish. And Jesus looks upon the crowd and he sees that. Sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked around and he saw these people actually being abused, beat up, neglected. And their greatest need in that moment was that they actually needed a shepherd. Because those who claimed to be their shepherds, which would be the scribes and the religious leaders and the Pharisees, that Jesus has already had interactions with and they have actually opposed him, those who would be these people's shepherd were most responsible for their condition. They were shepherdless, because those shepherds were unloving, uncaring, self-righteous leaders whom Jesus said, you just heap legalistic burden after burden that no man can keep, nor can you. And he looks upon this crowd, and he says, I have compassion, because these are not just sheep. These are sheep without a shepherd. Now, the image of shepherdless sheep has a strong Old Testament root And it's really fully explained in the New Testament, but it's given to us its substance in the Old Testament. In fact, in Numbers 27, we're told that Moses was a shepherd himself, and he actually prayed for a successor that the people would not be like sheep without a shepherd. In the book of Ezekiel, we have this entire chapter devoted to rebuking the false shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves, who do not take care of the flock, and so the sheep were scattered over the whole earth, and no one is searching or looking for them. And how does God respond to this great rebuke of these shepherdless sheep and these negligent shepherds? Listen to Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them into their own land." I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in the inhabitant places in the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, on rich pasture they shall feed in the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares Yahweh. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy, I will feed them in justice. In short, our Lord Jesus comes as the promised shepherd. When God said he will find his sheep, and he says, I will do this, Jesus shows up and says, these are sheep without a shepherd, and it is our clue that Yahweh has answered his promise Declaring that he will shepherd his sheep, I will do it, he says. He does not neglect, he does not abuse or beat his sheep. He goes after them, even to the extent that he actually will sacrifice himself to save his sheep. Friend, what you're hearing is that Christ is in the habit of finding his sheep in precarious and dangerous places that he seeks to rescue and to lead his sheep to green pastures and to still waters. And the hope for broken lives, your life, is nothing less than the good shepherd himself. This Christ, he has compassion, and this Christ, he sees your true condition. And according to scripture, the primary way that Christ ensures his people are cared for is by what? What? Teaching them. That is the immediate connection that Mark makes in verse 34. Look at your Bible. They were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. The primary way that Christ ensures these people are cared for is by teaching them. Now, this is really important because this right here gets at the heart of the human condition and your ultimate need. The effects of sin upon this world are grievous, and they are varied, touching mind and will and emotions and relationships, all circumstances. But the root problem, the ultimate problem, the only way that all of those effects can actually be healed or corrected or put right is through the words of life. Sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. See, what we have here is that when Christ responds to the condition of these neglected people by teaching them, what he's doing is setting for us a model for ensuring healthy sheep. They need to be fed. Meaning, if we want to care for God's people, and if we want to respond to the needs of others, ultimately, as Jesus did, we're to follow his lead we are to be concerned about the people of God receiving the word of God. That is the means by which shepherdless sheep or unhealthy sheep or immature sheep are cared for. Sheep need to be fed. Sheep need to be taught the many things that Jesus would go on to teach them. And do you know who got this? Peter. Peter understood this. Slowly but surely, And most soundly. Do you remember the end of John's gospel? The resurrected Christ, breakfast on the beach. He pulls Peter aside and he asks Peter a very searching question. He says, do you love me more than these? And what is it that Jesus emphasized three times to Peter in his love for Jesus? How would his love for Christ be expressed and transmitted to God's people? Peter, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And what would Peter write in his epistle as he would seek to exhort his fellow elders? In 1 Peter chapter 5, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And what would Paul say to the Ephesian elders as he was preparing to depart from them? The exhortation that he gave to him in that port city of Miletus in Acts 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained by his own blood. Shepherds feed the sheep. And it's not just shepherds because shepherds are simply an example to the flock. And so what the shepherds are doing, that means there is An emphasis on how we relate to one another. The way that we care for one another best is ensuring that the words of life are put before our brothers and sisters. The truth that we need, the counsel that we need, comes to us by taking the word of God to one another. That is how we are fed, and the need, it remains for us today. So can I ask you, pray for the ministry of God's word, whether it's here from a pulpit? being expounded or whether it's amongst brothers and sisters opening up the word of life and beginning to read and to speak that to one another pray for the ministry of God's word here at Veritas Church and other churches pray that churches would be filled with pulpits that proclaim the teaching of scripture and pray specifically that the members of these churches would have the the word of Christ Dwelling in them richly that they would speak and teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Because that is what sheep need. He is a shepherd. But he is lastly what we see here. A shepherd who actually gives commands. He's a shepherd who has compassion. A shepherd who sees the true condition. And a shepherd who gives commands. Did you notice verse 36? Did it stand out to you? On the surface, Jesus' disciples, their response, it actually seems reasonable and somewhat compassionate. They're concerned about the people's need for food. Jesus, it's getting late. You've been teaching some really good things, no doubt. We're a long way from any food. We've led these people out here. They need to eat. That sounds very practical and very considerate. It's actually Jesus' response when we read it at face value that sounds unreasonable in verse 37. You give them something to eat. It's a command. You give them something to eat. Now, where could they possibly come up with enough food to feed thousands upon thousands of people? Not only just the impracticality, remember what Jesus just instructed them a couple sections Prior in Mark chapter 5, Jesus had just sent them out two by two, instructed them to take no bag, no money belt, to rely on the hospitality of others. They're not a, a group with great means. And a quick calculation shows that 200 days' wages could not supply the amount of food to feed these people. Now, because this miracle is most likely so familiar to us, we know how the story ends. We know Jesus takes five loaves, two fish, feeds a multitude of people, 5,000 men, plus women and children. But do not overlook the setup. Do not overlook the setup and how we get there. Christ commands his disciples to feed the people. Christ will ultimately do it, but he commands them to do it. What does this mean? It means that God uses means. God takes up secondary means to accomplish his purposes. The people need to eat, but Christ demands that the disciples feed them. Christ is the one who will ultimately satisfy them and feed them, but it's through the provision that the disciples offer to Christ. It came through what the disciples gathered up and brought to Jesus. And friends, God continues to do the same exact thing today. He chooses to accomplish his purposes through means. He calls you to pray. He calls you to go and to speak. He calls you to be patient, to bear with, to speak the truth in love. He calls you to come alongside. He calls you to be humble, to repent, to walk in faith. He commands. He uses means to accomplish his purpose. What has Christ commanded of you? He is your shepherd, isn't he? If he is, what has he commanded of you? Turn and look at your own life and your growth and godliness and hear him. Be holy as I am holy. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Put on, then, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and patience. That's just looking at your own life, but perhaps you look beyond that and you look to your children or to your marriage, to your unbelieving coworker, to your neighbor, and you see the great need before you and you hear Christ calling you to love and to serve them. Do you see the nation's? Do you find your heart breaking for Christ's name, not being known among the multitudes? Do you look around and see weak and ineffective, unhealthy, malnourished churches and feel the sense of, oh Lord, please strengthen your church? What has Christ commanded? You give them something to eat. And like the disciples, do you find what you have appears to be woefully insignificant for the task. What about Moses? Come, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring out my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am of slow of speech and of tongue. What about Gideon? And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Minion. Did I not send you? Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. God commanded Church, do not be surprised to find that the areas of need that Christ calls you to expose your greatest inability. That's pretty typical of how the Lord does it. Do not be surprised that the very areas Christ calls you to be obedient to him in expose your great inability. You give them something to eat. Why? So that what is woefully insufficient is placed in the wonderfully sufficient hands of Jesus so that his purposes are accomplished and in such a way that he actually gets the glory. That is what he seeks to do. It's not only that the people are satisfied, but that in doing it this way, Christ is glorified. That is the connection. So have you noticed the themes and the tones that make up this narrative? Have you noticed they sound somewhat familiar? Especially if you've read through your, rest, your Old Testament and you've become familiar with the narratives that are there. What do we have here in Mark 6? Well, we have a multitude of people in a deserted wilderness. We have questions arising, what are we going to eat? How are we going to be sustained? How will we be provided for Here. So, what Mark puts together for us here in chapter 6 is that Jesus reveals himself to be the one who is sufficient to provide bread in the wilderness. Mark 6 is filled with all of these eschatological overtones that Jesus is the promised one who will rescue his people in the wilderness to sustain and satisfy them. Jesus is the one who provides in the wilderness. And what he does here, really the great emphasis is not simply on his ability to somehow work wonders as if he's some birthday party magician. What he does here is what these wonders actually reveal. And the point of the richness of this Old Testament background, it's becoming brighter, it's becoming bolder here, because what we're seeing is that Christ, he's the true and the greater Moses. You heard of Moses, but look at this Jesus You were called to trust in him, but now you're called to trust in him. Look and see how Moses just was the shadow of the greater one to come because this Jesus, he provides for his people in desolate wilderness. He is able to sufficiently provide for his people. There's only one person who does that, Yahweh. And here Jesus begins to feed the sheep. All of this really is only a reflection of what Mark said in the very first verse of this gospel when he announced good news. How did he introduce Jesus to us? Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the promised deliverer who is the Son of God. And here we see more detail and more expression, more depth perception being built out out that we might see that very same proclamation in Mark chapter 1. Jesus, not only the one who provides in the wilderness, but consider this second narrative there in verse 45, Jesus showing powers over the waters. Now, by this point, we've probably become accustomed to Mark's frequent use of this word immediately. It's there again, verse 45. After a while, you may even be tempted to skip over it. You read it, but it's just a word. But in this instance, the immediacy, it's very real. At the close of feeding the 5,000, John, in his gospel, he gives us a little additional detail. Listen to what John records. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come, take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Immediately, Mark said, he made his disciples get into the boat. There's something happening here where the people are responding in a way that is good, but they don't really understand what they're doing. Because they see the signs that he performed, but they don't yet see him on the cross from which he would come for. And so he says, you get in the boat and go. You go home. I'm going up to the mountain. And he literally just shuts everything down. There continues to be this continued misunderstanding of why Jesus has come. And because of that great danger, Mark records the following events. He records, first of all, how Jesus simply retreated. Verses 45 and 46. He made his disciples get into the boat and go before them to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up to the mountainside to pray. Now, in reading that, you might think it's somewhat obvious, even expected. Jesus prayed. Probably would have assumed that. He seems like the model that we should be following if he's the son of God, the son of righteousness, the Holy One. Not that surprising that he would actually spend time in prayer. Let's move on, verse 47. But what's really important to see is that there's really only a a few particular moments when the Gospels record for us that Jesus specifically got away for the purpose of prayer. Here, just after the feeding of the multitudes, with John's understanding that they were ready to make him king, he departs to pray. On the night before he called his apostles to himself, he departed, retreated to pray. And most explicitly the night before his crucifixion. There in the garden, watching, praying. Each moment was a particularly pressing and urgent occasion within his ministry that had something to do explicitly with why he had come and who he is. And therefore, we should not move too quickly over this section, dismissing it just as a trite detail that Jesus prayed. Think about what's being said here the Messiah. The God sent deliverer, the Son of God, made time to seek his Father through intentional times of prayer. It almost seems too obvious to even make the point, but we must. If this Jesus, considering who he is, made time to seek his Father in prayer, shouldn't we? It sounds so obvious. But how obviously we need to be reminded of it. Prayer is the greatest expression of our dependence upon God. When we pray, we are exercising great faith. Not only are we testifying that we are insufficient to obtain the very thing that we need, but we are testifying that it comes about by us communing with our Heavenly Father. Sometimes we'll actually close our hands and and put them together, perhaps just even to remind ourselves that it's not by my hands and striving that this is going to come about. I'm going to just set them down. I am so dependent that I'm dependent upon my Father right now. We seek him in prayer as a greatest expression of dependence and faith, saying, what is before us, I am woefully insufficient for, but you are wonderfully sufficient And we begin to pray as we are taught, Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we begin to move into our needs, our requests, our worship, our confession. Do your lives reflect this pattern? Have you found the nourishment? Have you found the joy, the engagement and drawing aside that comes from just setting aside time to pray? How could we as a church grow in reflecting Christ's model? Not only individually, but corporately. Jesus took time to pray to express his glad dependence upon his heavenly Father, seeking his will, wanting his will, modeling it for us. We see not only his retreat, but in verses 47 through 50, we see ultimately his revelation. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. No doubt the term walk on water has become common euphemism for just sheer greatness. They walk on water. Why do we say that? because Jesus does what cannot be done. Only God can do something that amazing. When I mean, the revelation of God in Job chapter 9 it testifies this that the whole chapter speaking of God's greatness and power, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, he alone stretched out the heavens and tramples on the waves of the sea. Only God does that. And certainly to see a man walk upon the waters is a pretty strong indicator that he's more than a teacher. He's, he's more than a prophet. He has something else going on. But Mark includes this detail that moves us just beyond the shock of seeing a human figure walking upon a body of water. What Mark does is subtle, but so powerful. Look back at verse 48 where it says that at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. It's a curious phrase, isn't it? Has it caught your attention? What is Jesus doing? Was he trying to sneak by them on the water? Was he just meaning to pass by them so that they could see him? Was he trying to pass by so that he could come up alongside them and jump in the boat with them? What is Mark trying to say? He meant to pass by them. Well, again, it's only when we allow the illumination of the Old Testament to shine upon this passage that we see the emphasis of what Mark is getting at. This phrase, pass by them, it's not unique to Mark. It's not unique to the Gospels. It actually finds its bedrock in the book of Exodus. It's found elsewhere in First Kings and, and throughout the prophets, but its bedrock is in Exodus 33. If you have a copy of your Bible, turn over just so you can see these words. Exodus 33, verse 18. The context is Moses' simple but yet mysterious request to see God. Exodus thirty-three, eighteen. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not live and see me. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and write upon the tablets the words that are on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks nor herds graze opposite the mountain. And so Moses cut two tablets like stone, like the first. He rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of the stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh, the Lord, passed before him and proclaimed. And we have the name of God. He meant to pass by them. He was there on the waters. He meant to pass by them. And as we read our scriptures and those echoes of Old Testament testimony resonate in our ears, we're meant to hear them and say what is happening here is the revelation of Yahweh. God passed by them. This is a massive billboard here in Mark's account that clues us in as to who this Jesus is. This is Yahweh who passed before Moses, who passed before Elijah. When he reveals himself, he says, I will do this in such a way that I will pass before you. And Jesus treads upon the waters and he passes before them. Jesus does not only what only God can do, he says what only God can say. Because there's something more here. If we're thick-headed, it gets better. Because when Jesus passes before them, look what he says in verse 50. He spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, one of the more... repeated phrases within the gospel of John is this repetition of, I am. Many of you are familiar with the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd of the sheep. And of course, all of this, every time that Jesus says that in John, I am, It is really this hyperlink back to Exodus 3 when the Lord reveals himself to Moses and the burning bush and he says, I am who I am. I am the self-existent one. I am who I am. And when that name, Yahweh, I am, is translated into the Greek, it is done so as ego ami, What's interesting, if you pick up a copy of the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which would have been familiar to Jesus and to his disciples, what you find in Exodus three is "ego a me," I am, and what you have here in Mark chapter six verse fifty is "take heart, ego a me," or literally. I am. What Jesus says is only what God can say. Take heart. The I am is here. Do not be afraid. When Jesus spoke these words upon the water, he was not merely showing his disciples, waving to him, guys, it's me. It's okay. I'm not a ghost. It's me. He's doing so much more than that. He is telling them, take heart. I am. I am that I am. Yahweh is here. Do not be afraid. What Jesus is doing is giving us a glimpse of his true identity so that we might see it is full divinity. He is Yahweh. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. He's greater than John the Baptist. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yahweh has come in the flesh to be the shepherd that satisfies and sustains his people. He is the one who treads upon the waters, commands the seas, and says to his people, take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. Friends, when you see Jesus in the scriptures like this explicitly, you are seeing God's fullest revelation of himself. The God who cannot be seen reveals himself to us in the person of Christ. The disciples have been directed by Jesus to, to pass through the waters, and Jesus reveals himself as the one who will be with them in the waters. The God of Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, David, keep going. He's come to rescue his people. He treads upon the waters, and he says, I am. Do not be afraid. How do they respond to this? Because Mark Causes the record needle to scratch. We hear that, and we want to just stand up and begin to sing the doxology. But what happened to these men? Look back at Mark 6, verse 51. What Mark records actually is that upon hearing those words, Jesus got into the boat with them, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Four. they did not understand about the lows, but their hearts were hardened. Mark is unique in his account. He doesn't just tell us the disciples were astounded. Well, up to that comma, we would say understandably so. Comma, four. He says the reason for their astonishment was owed to their ignorance and their hardness of heart. They didn't understand about something because their hearts were hardened. What Mark is saying was the reason for their astonishment was not that they saw Ego Ami. They didn't understand what they were seeing. They thought he was a ghost. They should have recognized him. And Mark says the reason they should have recognized him is because of what happened with the loaves. These two accounts are connected. That was meant to show them something that would help them upon the waters. They saw Jesus provide in the wilderness, and they should have recognized him on the waters. But they didn't. Their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand about the loaves. They saw the signs. But did they really see the signs? They saw five loaves, two fish, feed thousands. No doubt. Mark gives us the detail. Twelve basketfuls. Did that mean each disciple literally had leftovers? But they didn't understand. Their hearts were hardened. They saw the signs, but did they see the significance? Meaning, Jesus is the self-existent, eternal God who comes in the flesh Or is he just a more powerful version of yourself? Because that's a real temptation. I can't feed 5,000. But Jesus did. He's pretty powerful. He's more powerful than me. All of this is driving at the center of this gospel, which is found in Mark 8, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? who do you say that I am? That's what all of this is driving at in Mark's narrative, that we would be confronted with this same question. And so I ask you this morning, who do you say that Jesus is? If you continue to see him as one who is just a little more loving than you, someone who's like you but more patient than you, Someone who's just a bit more holy than you, like you'll give him that. Someone who is just a bit more wise than you. Friends, if that is your understanding of who Jesus is, your heart will be hardened and you will fail to understand him. You will not see him if he's just a better version of yourself. Jesus Christ and Has come and Mark records for us his words and his works so that we might be exposed to the reality of his divinity, making a correct assumption of his identity. He is the one who calls his people to true rest, just as this narrative began. He is the one who leads into desolate wilderness and yet provides for us. He is one who leads upon the great waters, even in the face of the great winds, and shows that he has mastery over the water in the wind. He is greater than the prophets, he's greater than Moses, and ultimately he will show us that he's greater than death itself. Friends, how often though we convince ourselves that our greatest need is simply what God must provide for us, whether that's a provision of bread, peace in some storm, or the solitude that we crave, but what the scriptures would show us is that our greatest need, your greatest need, is to see Christ as he is, not just what he gives. True rest, true satisfaction, comes not from just getting the various benefits from God, but by trusting and resting in the fact that Christ is the God-man, that he is sufficient for all that I need because He is. Ego a me. And Christ speaks to us this morning by his own word, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. Let's respond together this morning by trusting and resting upon him because of what he's revealed in himself, that he is wonderfully sufficient not only to satisfy but to provide for us. Our God and our Father, we look to you this morning and we confess that how often and how deeply we have such a diminished view of your Son. Lord, we see how often we try to reason from our own lives up to you and make some sense of who you are, but Father, what we need ultimately is for you to break into our lives and completely decimate our opinion of you and our man-made ideas of you that you might reveal yourself as you are. And we rejoice to know that you have done that, that you have not only broken into our world, but that you have given us your word, which so clearly expounds and proclaims through example and implication and clear command and testimony that you are the Christ, the Son of God, Father, we ask that you would cause that great truth to permeate our minds, our hearts, our affections, that you would continue not only to conform us to the image of your Son by showing us your sufficiency and your great sovereignty, but, Lord, that you would call us out of darkness and into your marvelous light, that we would see you as you are. Lord, I pray this morning that you would draw sinners to yourself, save us, continue to sanctify us, Lord, and continue to bring great glory to your name through this process, we pray. Amen.